I want to thank Maureen for reading that passage for us. If you don't know who Maureen is, she's a Bible teacher for our women in our church. And so, uh, ladies, if you haven't uh, uh, maybe picked up on a Bible study in the community, you can always be part of the women's ministry, and they do a great job in teaching the Word. So, appreciate you, Maureen. Thank you. Uh, I want to pray again, and, and I want to pr- miss prayer to to go beyond just this teaching today. I, like you, probably deeply concerned for our nation, deeply concerned for what all is happening, and uh, I think we need to pray. I think uh, the enemy is doing anything and everything he can to sow seeds of discord, to divide the nation. And I think it's time that uh, we as the body of Christ just really uh, give time for prayer. And I don't mean just Sunday morning, but every day. Be in prayer. Be praying. Uh, You might even want to consider fasting over this matter, that we would pray for our nation, pray for those in leadership. Pray that God would thwart the attack of the enemy, that he would turn it around on Satan and all that he's trying to do. So let's begin with prayer. And of course, uh, we, we don't plan it this way, but it's just amazing how what we study in the Bible reflects so well on life, and we want to uh, do that again today. Let the Word speak. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for uh, the privilege of being a child of God. Just think about what John said in his letter to the church when, when he said that, uh, have you ever considered what type or manner of love that the Father has shown you, that you would be called children of God and that's who we are and so as children of God we come this morning humbled broken knowing our own sin past and knowing that daily we fall short but knowing that our sins have been forgiven through the work of Christ on the cross and so now we come like little children gathering at a table We're coming with this desire, this yearning, this hunger for your word, for truth, that not only we apply in our personal lives, but we can apply in our workplace, in our school setting. We can apply it to others. I pray that, Lord, today this would not just be a teaching uh, from the Bible for knowledge's sake, but that the knowledge would grow us in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, we lift our nation to you. Uh, Psalm 33 is such a powerful passage to remind us that you are sovereign over all the nations and that we cannot trust in the war horse or the kings or those in power, that our trust must be in the Lord. Psalm 40 says, make the Lord, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't follow after those who lapse into falsehood. God, that's the best that man can do. But the scripture says that you, Father, are not a man that you should lie. That's the distinguishing factor of a man, is that we're all capable of lying because the heart is deceitful above all things, and who can know it? And none is righteous, no, not one. So Lord, our prayer for the nation is that God, you would win. 
that your plans, what those purposes might be, we don't know. But Lord, that your plans would come to fruition. And we know this, that in times of trial and setback and trouble and persecution, that is when your people have thrived. That's when the explosion of growth took place in the early church. And so, Father, just prepare us for the days ahead. We pray protection for our president, for his family. We pray protection for those who serve in the legislative branch, the judicial branch. We want to lift them to you, Lord. We pray that you would watch over them, that you would convict them of their sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That, Lord, you would turn back the work of the enemy, the concealed conniving work of satan that you would reveal it for what it is it would be exposed in every place in every nook every cranny and lord that you would win that's our prayer that's our heart's desire we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and may we remain faithful regardless what happens outside of us knowing that you dwell within us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And you dwell within. So may the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit fill us, not only today, but for the year ahead. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we're in chapter 12 in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm very excited about this chapter. I'm excited about the Gospel of Matthew. And today, if you'll turn to chapter 12, uh, we're going to find that Jesus was never fond of religious traditions of men. I mean, man has his own religious ways, his own religious methods. Churches have that today. Every church has methods and ways. They're simply things that you're familiar with. And they're not bad necessarily. But when you start trusting in those for your righteousness, for your right standing with God, when you trust in the religious traditions of man for your relationship with God, you're missing true relationship with the Father, which can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ the Son. And and back in chapter 5 of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out the fact that the religious leaders were very good at missing God's intended purpose for the law of Moses, which was to point men to Christ. That really is the whole purpose of the law in the Old Testament, to point us to Christ. It's a a tutor, it's a teacher, because no man can live perfectly against the law. And the only way the law works is if you're perfect. Well, the law was never intended to work for you. The law was intended to be there to show you you can't be perfect so that then you would receive the work that comes through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Only He could be perfect in God the Father's eyes, not us. And so what man does, though, we create our own laws that fit our own legalistic standard or system. And as long as you didn't club someone to death then you were clear of the moral law that said, thou shalt not murder. But that didn't mean God's standard for righteousness was met. That's that's simply man's standard. If I don't murder somebody, 
then I'm good with the Ten Commandments. Jesus came in Matthew 5, and he said, I didn't come to abolish the law of the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. I came to bring it to its fullness. And so in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. So God intended that the law speak to more than just an outward physical issue. It speaks to our inner emotions. God's law doesn't just cover the things that you do, it covers the way you think and the things that you believe inside that nobody knows about. Sin begins in the mind, church. You might want to write that down. That's where it's conceived. It's in the mind. And from the, from the attitudes of our heart come forth actions. That's the role. That's the pathology of sin. It starts inside with a thought, and then it carries out to an action on the outside. God isn't interested in our attempt to only control our wrong actions. And this is where this teaching of Jesus 2,000 years ago fits so aptly today in this congregation. Because our fleshly tendency, our, I should say, carnal tendency, is to simply focus on how I'm living as a Christian on the outside. And we neglect, like the Pharisees, to focus on the attitudes of our heart, what's inside of us, what we're thinking, what we're feeling on the inside. Now, the result of their misinterpretation of the law was that the Pharisees developed a self-righteousness about them. Their spiritual pride placed them in a spiritual elite category. See, sin always takes you down. It can't take you up. So while the rest of the common folk were on the center level, the Pharisees looked down from their ivory towers at the low-life sinners. When they walked down the streets, they held their robes tightly against them because they didn't want their robes to actually or accidentally brush up against the stained lives of the wretched. And you and I would be the stained lives that he's talking about, that Jesus addressed with the Pharisees. And, and so they were very self-righteous. They were a sect of people, along with the religious leaders, the Jewish council, who placed the emphasis on the outside, and Jesus said, you're nothing more than whitewashed tombs. You're a clean-looking-on-the-outside tomb. You're dead on the inside. That's why as you move throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus hurls at the, uh, the Pharisees some of the heaviest words of condemnation you'll ever hear because of their self-righteousness, because of their religious, religiosity. So they would interpret the law of Moses, and in this endeavor of interpreting the law of God, the moral law of God, they took great liberty to make the law as outwardly focused as possible, especially when it came to the Sabbath law. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the laws of keeping the Sabbath. 
Now, what God meant by keeping the Sabbath was far different than what they instituted in their own version of Sabbath keeping. In God's mind, the idea was worship. Worship God. The idea of Sabbath was a time of rest. Lay down everything you're doing. Make your focus the Lord. Plus, another benefit of Sabbath in that day was it gave your body a physical, emotional, mental rest from the things that you did six days a week. That's not a bad thing, by the way. Some of you who are working seven days a week, your body's not getting a chance to rest. You know what it's like. You go on vacation, you plan for this vacation all year, you go on vacation, you get away, and now all of a sudden you find you're so tired. You just want to sleep. Why? Because you stopped working, and now your body's yelling out, what about me? How about some rest? And some of you are so hard-headed that you just press right on through even in vacation. You come home and need a vacation from your vacation, but you can't do it because you're hard-headed. You go right back to work. And you never get the rest that you need. But these guys, would, these self-righteous law keepers, uh, they wrote page after page of what, is, what it was that constituted the keeping of Sabbath, the Sabbath day. <laughs> and by the way, the Sabbath day was a time when you did not bear a burden. If you want to get down to the nitty-gritty in the Greek, you don't bear a burden on the Sabbath. So they created all these rules, human traditions, human rules, to constitute not bearing a burden on the Sabbath. Okay, For example, they decided that if a person had lost their leg and they had a wooden leg, that that person couldn't use that artificial leg on the Sabbath because you're bearing a burden. So either you hop around, which you also can't do because now you're working up a sweat, so you just stay seated the whole day or lay down the whole day. These are silly laws, and they get worse, believe me. If you had false teeth, uh-uh. Can't wear the false teeth on the Sabbath day. That's bearing a burden in your mouth. <laughs> Ladies, back in that day, they didn't have false eyelashes. Good thing. Because you're bearing a burden. That's how ridiculous, how silly these religious professionals were back in that day. If your house caught on fire, they, they actually thought through these things. And they even had a game with it, trying to figure out ways around their human tradition. Here's, a human tra Here's one of their traditions for Sabbath in their own rules. It was that if your house caught on fire on the Sabbath day, you weren't allowed to save any possessions by carrying them out of your house because that would, be, that would constitute you bearing a burden. You couldn't carry things out of your house. So basically, either the house burns down and you get nothing of your possessions to keep their rules, or... They came up with these wonderful little workarounds. So what you do is you, you go outside of your house while it's burning, you take off your outer garment, you walk back in, and you put on another garment to save that piece of clothing, and you carry it out. And then you take it off and go back in and put on another over and over until all your clothes have been saved from the fire. What an asinine thought. And that's what these guys did. 
This is what it was about for them. They made a game out of it. So as they were trying to fine-tune this law about Sabbath-keeping, they lost the meaning of Sabbath-keeping entirely. Jesus was unimpressed with their silly interpretations and self-made rules. He didn't share in their religious games and traditions. In fact, he opposed their traditional interpretations. And that's why he dealt so harshly with them. They were constantly coming after him because of his violation of the Sabbath rules, and chapter 12 is filled with it. Now, Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. That's what chapter 5 tells us when Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the first problems that arose in the early church when they were, uh, when they were starting to see Gentiles come into the faith who were being converted was that many of the believing Jews thought that the Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to be fulfilled in the new salvation of the Lord. Okay, we're miserable. We had to get uh, you know, circumcised. Now you need to be circumcised. And they were pushing these things on the Gentiles in, the, in Antioch, in the Gentile church. And, and so word gets back to, the, to Peter and Barnabas and Paul and the rest of them, and they hold a meeting in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council. And there they make a decision, and they determine that, no, they don't need, Gentiles don't need to become Jews in that sense. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ gives them everything they need. We don't need to add a burden onto them. And then basically they, they just said to the Gentiles that were saved, hey, just don't get caught up in idolatry and worldly systems of belief. Just, just stay away from that nonsense. But you don't need to become a Jew to be saved. You're already saved through Christ. And in Hebrews we're told that Jesus Christ is our rest. That's what Sabbath was for, rest. And it's been proven that man's body needs it, as we said earlier. So here in chapter 12 we find Jesus in one of his controversies with the religious rulers, and once again it's about Sabbath keeping. So let's pick up at verse 1. At that time Jesus, we're not going to go through the whole chapter by the way, some of you were just wondering about that. Your stomach was starting to growl and you're going, okay, mm, lunch, I'm trying to figure the time thing here, and if he goes the whole chapter that's 50 verses. We're in trouble. Okay, I know how some of you think. I are one, okay? At that time Jesus went through the grain fields of, on the Sabbath, and His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, his followers, how he entered the house of God, that would be the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and he ate the bread of the presence, the showbread? Which, is, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So here they are addressing Jesus on allowing the disciples to pick some grain, which, by the way, in Deuteronomy said you absolutely could do. If a man is hungry, he's able to glean from the field what he needs to eat. You don't take a sickle to it, but you're able to glean. And so they were just simply following the Old Testament law. They weren't following the religious leaders' little rules that they created above the law. So Jesus is referring here in the text to a time when David was fleeing from King Saul, and he came to the tabernacle with his men, and they were extremely hungry. They were weary, they were tired, they needed food. They were about to pass out. And, and so they actually went in and they took 
the showbread, which was only to be used for the Lord's service but by his priest, and they began to eat it. And Jesus is saying, you're telling me that my guys are wrong for being hungry on the Sabbath and getting food. Are you forgetting your king, David, who did the same thing? And, and here's the reality. Jesus understood that it was not unlawful for them to do that because while the ceremonial law said that the bread was only for the priest, the moral law of God, and there were other laws that were higher than that law. The Bible says that if a person is starving, feed them. Feed them. And that's what David was doing with his men. In verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? They were doing things in terms of action or behavior that were profanities, yet they were found guiltless. The priests themselves break the Sabbath all the time. They do it. Pastors today, we break the Sabbath. If you were to keep a Sabbath, which I don't believe that we're to keep a day, Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. My rest is in Him. It's not in a day or a week or a whatever. It's not a location. It's in my heart that the Holy Spirit lives. So I can find rest in Him anytime I want, any day of the week. Amen? But these priests, they would break the Sabbath all the time. The, the Pharisees didn't understand as much about Sabbath observance as they thought they did. He, here Jesus is reminding them of their own, their own customs. A Sabbath, listen, a priest on the Sabbath at the temple had to do a lot of things. Uh, he had to sacrifice the animal. He had to prepare the animal for the sacrifice. The priest had to kindle the fires that they used. This is all happening on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, so you're not getting on them? In other words, these silly little rules you've made, it doesn't flesh out like you think it does. And he's calling them on it. He, Jesus said in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Oh my goodness. Here you're worried about what's happening with these men uh, taking and eating some bread. And I'm telling you that the priests, they would go in the temple and they would work on the Sabbath. And here I am, and I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the tabernacle. This is a reference to himself. Jesus is saying here, I'm greater. What made the temple holy was the dwelling of God. And Jesus is saying, I am God. This is, a, this is Jesus claiming deity in front of the Pharisees. I'm here in front of you. Not the physical furniture of the building, that's not holy. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Coming to church on Sunday is not when you come into holiness. I go to church. You'd be surprised how many people see it that way. I want to please God here because I'm going to go to church on Sunday. And that'll make God feel better about me. He's going to like me more because I come to church. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within every day if you're a believer. And so why would Sunday be so special? That's not special in terms of worship of God. You worship God anywhere, anytime, all the time. Yet he does say, don't forsake assembling together in your worship of God. Don't forsake it. Why? Because the greatest commandments, plural, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Start with the family of God. Do good unto all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. If you're not in the household of faith, how can you do good to them? But you're not doing it to appease God. You're doing it because God now is in you and you are just flowing out, out of you, this Greek preposition, ipi, E-P-I. It, the Holy Spirit has come upon you and he's flowing out of you into the lives of others. That's, that's the picture of true worship of God. That's the picture of true belonging to the family of God. Not about outward expressions to God. Verse 7, and if you had known what this means, here it is, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you knew what that meant, you would not have condemned the guiltless. God would much rather we show mercy and be merciful than to offer sacrifices to him. That's why it says in Matthew 18 and in Matthew 5, if you're at the altar with God in prayer, in worship, giving to God whatever your gift is at the, at the altar, Jesus said, then, and you remember that your brother has ought with you, or the other passage, Matthew 18 and 5 both, or you have ought with your brother, it doesn't really matter, because you'll say, well, you, you should get that right with him. Oh no, I don't have a problem with him. Well, the scripture covers you. It says, if you have ought with him, or if he has ought with if you know he has ought with you, you still need to leave your, your gift at the altar and go and make it right. Why? Because what's more important than your sacrifice to God is the mercy that comes from your heart towards others. Get that right. This is what Jesus is saying here. This is not me coming up with some idea. that He said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In the Old Testament, King Saul came back from battle, having disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. To uh, God said, utterly wipe out the Amalekites. Take them out. They, they, they are of no good. They will, all they'll do is they will take Israel down. You, you don't want them around. Take them out. God, God, by the way, has foreknowledge, right? He's sovereign. He sees all. He knows all. He knew that there would come a day where the Amalekites or their offspring would try and annihilate the Jews. And so God, on his foreknowledge, is saying to King Saul, wipe them out, man, woman, and child, and their animals. Don't save anything. And so, interestingly, Saul comes back from battle, and he says to Samuel, the man of God, I've done everything that the Lord has requested. And Samuel's response is, if you've done all that the Lord's commanded you, why do I hear animals? Why? And Saul's response was, oh, the animals. Well, they're so nice, they're so clean, they look so good. We're going to use those to make sacrifices to God. And Samuel said, 1 Samuel 15, 22, if you're a Bible student and you're taking notes, 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
It is so interesting how we can manipulate. We think we're manipulating and getting away with it. We're not. God calls us out on it. But how we'll, Lord, you just know that if you'll provide that car for me, that sweet-smelling leather car, that new, brand-new car, if you'll provide that, Lord, I'll, I'll use that car for your glory when you're not even showing mercy and grace to those you know. Or let's go ahead, man, let's just step into this for a second. Father, I'm just telling you that boat would be a ministry boat. I'll even make that the name, ministry. If somebody says, where are you? I'm out doing ministry. Lord, if you just give me that boat, um, God desires a right heart of worship and right relationship with others more than he desires you getting a boat. Not against boats, I have a boat, but the boat better never come inside of me. It should never sit in my heart. That's reserved solely for God, right? That's why my boat's been in the storage for like eight months. And it's been out a couple times recently, getting it ready. I'm going to take that boat out on a little boat ride, take my grandson. So God had come to the place where he was sick of their sacrifices because they had taken the position that if we sin, we can always go offer a sacrifice and be forgiven. So God says, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. God would rather see them having mercy than offering sacrifices. God would rather our hearts be right before him than us constantly making sacrifices to appease God. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, if you understand this, then you wouldn't be here condemning the guiltless. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There it is in the Bible. The next time a Hebrews root member, a Jewish roots uh, member, that is a group of people, uh, is growing all over the United States and beyond the United States. It's a sect of people who are deeply caught up in restoring the law of the Old Testament and living by the law, as if somehow that is the answer as a Christian. Basically, they're doing what Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the others said, don't do. But they're doing it. And if you'll, they'll ask you the question, um, do you keep the law? Um, but they don't say law, they, they say Torah. Are you keeping the Torah? Well, I don't think I have to follow that since Christ is the fulfillment of it. Uh, they freak out. They can't handle it. This is the verse you take them to, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. For the Lord, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Christ has the prerogative to rule over not only their man-made Sabbatarian rules, but also over the Sabbath itself, which was designed for the worship of God. What you have here in this one sentence is a direct claim to deity, and the Pharisees are now beyond themselves with outrage that he made this claim. Jesus claimed to be greater than the Sabbath. That's why there's no longer a need for keeping certain days or certain locations we find rest in Christ. The Jews in the Old Testament saw the promised land as that place of rest. They got into the promised land and there was no rest. 
because God never intended the promised land to be the final place for them. It would be found in Jesus Christ. Everything points to Christ in the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, as Marine read, the, all you see is the, that's the shadow. It's a picture of something to come. In the New Testament, Christ is the substance. It's in Him that we find rest. For all believers, Jesus really is the Sabbath, folks. He claimed to be greater than the Sabbath. That's why we're, there's no longer a need for keeping certain days. We find our rest in Christ Himself. He is our rest. He is our Sabbath. We've entered into, not the promised land, we've entered into not a location, not a place, we've entered into Christ who's in here. Verse 9, he went on from there and entered the, their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. So here the Pharisees go with Jesus as he enters into the temple, and they saw the man who had the, had the withered hand, and here they are already laying a plot, a plan. Wait till he gets over, because we know this guy. He's not going to resist helping this man with a withered hand. Isn't that wonderful that the, your enemy would know you to be kind, compassionate? Your enemy would know that you would be vulnerable, that you don't fight fire with fire. You offer kindness and mercy. And so they, they thought, we'll, we'll trap him with that. If a person had been injured and was bleeding to death, according to the law, in keeping the Sabbath by these knuckleheads, you could apply a tourniquet. You just can't do anything to begin mending the broken bone or the cut. So they could apply a tourniquet to stop the bleeding, but don't, don't put gauze on it, don't put any ointment on it. you got to wait till, till Sunday for that. After the Sabbath, which started at sundown. Sundown to sundown was a full day. And that's how they would treat it. That's what they would do. And now Jesus comes into this place. He went on from there and he comes into the, tent, into the synagogue and he sees this man with a withered hand. And verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? When he said that to them, See, Jesus knows all things. He's God. He's in the form of man. He's fully man, but he's still fully God. He, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they do. These guys would do that. On the Sabbath, if they had a sheep that fell in a pit, they'd reach down and pull the sheep out. They didn't want anybody to see them do that because that's, that's bearing a burden. But that's what they do. Jesus knew it. He called them on it. Don't you guys do this? And now the, he, the trapper is trapped these guys who were trying to trap Christ, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? What a great passage. What a great passage on the sanctity of life, the value of the unborn as opposed to the value of animals. Oh, I pray that PETA hears this message. When you place the value of an animal over the value of a human being, you have crossed the line in God's eyes. And those of you right now, if there's anyone here who right now, the hair on your neck is starting to stand up and bristle, you don't have a problem with me. 
you have a problem with God. There's nothing wrong with animals, but don't ever think for a second that an animal is more valuable in the eyes of God than a human being. And why in the world we get all upside down, sideways over something that happens to an animal and not get even more upset over what happens to an unborn child. I don't understand that. Not among Christians. This is a touchy subject, but I don't care. You know, if look, if I'm stepping on your toes, as I've said many times in the past, move your feet. I'm not, this is not my position. This is not my idea. This is not my opinion. This is the Word of God. The highest value of creation on the earth is human being. God didn't make animals after his image. He made man and woman after his image. And he expects us to show that respect. I, I hope next week, I hope all of you will join us as we go out at 2 o'clock and we stand, what did you say, Deb, 82nd Avenue? That we stand on the corner of State Road 60 and 82nd Avenue and we stand for life, the life of the unborn. Such an important thing. And then Jesus said this, I love it. He said, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because God values man more than sheep. And then he said this, this then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now this is just really ironic so Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath because he's more valuable to God than the keeping of a sheep or whatever it might be that these guys would rescue on the Sabbath and get upset that he was healing a man. And what's interesting is they go away angry and start to plan to put him to death on the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath for? The worship of God. The very ones calling out Jesus, the Son of God, are walking away, not practicing the Sabbath. What Jesus did to that man was in keeping with the worship of God. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored fully. Let's go down to verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. So Jesus goes away. He's going to get out of the synagogue, away from that area where these guys are. And that's a good thing. He deliberately avoided uh, further con uh, conflict or con confrontation because why? His time had not yet come to go to the cross. The scripture says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Well, when he was on the earth, in the fullness of his time, that's when he went to the cross. It's not time yet. Verse 15, latter part of the verse, and many followed him, and he healed them all. I love that. On the Sabbath, he just put it right in their face. I'm not just going to heal this guy. I'm going to heal everybody. And order them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 42 said, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will upon, that's that Greek ippi, Greek word ippi, the overflow, I'll put my spirit upon him, he'll overflow, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. He's not going to come after the Jews in his first visit to the earth. He, he's not going to do that. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, until he wins the battle on the cross. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So here was the prophecy of Isaiah proclaiming that the gospel is going to be declared to the Gentiles. And the Lord is not going to face these religious leaders with a direct physical confrontation. Instead, he just withdraws himself. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? Look at it, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all, that the people were, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? That too was a prophecy that the seed of David, from the seed of David, would come the Messiah. And here they are saying it. Could this be the Messiah? They're seeing that he's more than just a man. When you see modern people today who in their own Christianity or own religion give Jesus credit for being a prophet, but they cannot see him as the Son of God. You need to stay away from the Unitarian Universalist Church. You say, oh my goodness, you just called somebody out. Paul called them out. Peter called them out. They spoke of those who were leading others astray all the time. I don't apologize for that. I don't need to be mean. I don't need to, be, uh, I don't need to make it personal. But I'm going to speak the truth in love. Stay away. The Bible says avoid such people. Those who give Jesus credit for being a great man or a prophet, but they will not go to the point of allowing him to be the son of God. They don't believe that. Yet they bring people in and act as if they have God. That is blasphemy. That is heresy. Jesus is God. Important that we see that. So here in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, by Satan, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid Waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You're telling me that I am casting out this demon of this, these demons and this man by Satan. So, what you just said is Satan is casting out Satan, he's calling out the Pharisees. It makes no sense. You just divided Satan's kingdom. Why would Satan ever do that? He wouldn't do that. Logic tells you that. Verse 27, I love it. Or I'm sorry, verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's very interesting. Jesus said, how do you, take, how do you enter a strong man's house? And by the way, he didn't say, how do you, how do you steal from a strong man? He simply said, how do you enter a strong man's house? The only way to do it is by binding the strong man. Jesus was saying, I'm the guy that's come down from heaven to enter this world, Satan's house, 
He's known as the prince of this world. He's the strong man in this environment. And I'm going to bind him on the cross so that I can take back what belongs to God the Father, which is his children. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We're closing down this message. Let me just say this. This is Jesus' response, and Jesus is very clear here. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Basically, what he's saying is there's no neutral ground, folks. This is Jesus' opinion. This is what he's saying. This is not me telling you I think this is what it means. Jesus is saying there's no neutral ground. You can't be here this morning and say Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a great leader. Oh, we just need to walk in the spirit or the attitude that Jesus carried. No, Jesus doesn't give you that option. Jesus is way more radical than that. Jesus is saying you're either with me as the Son of God, you believe that, or you do not. Matthew twenty-two forty-two. Jesus asked the question of the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's basically the question that every human being has to answer. He doesn't leave you some slack, you know, where you can just come up with your own little cute answer or some neutral position that you can take. You have to stand for something. It's either Christ or it's not. That is the irreducible minimum. You, 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 there's nothing below it. You either believe him as the Son of God or you don't. Well, Pastor Greg, I don't know that I'm ready to make a decision on that. You just did. You made a decision not to see him as the Son of God. No, no, I'm just procrastinating. Procrastination is a decision of inactivity. You made a decision. There's no place. Jesus is not giving any human being in this room or any of your friends or any of your family or anyone you know the option of being less than decisive over whether he is the Son of God or he is not. No decision is a decision. Because they had accused him of doing his work by the power of Satan, he warns them against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because by this accusation they are showing evidence that they are approaching that horrible sin for which there is no forgiveness. Verse 31, therefore, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the refusal to heed to take in the work of the Spirit within your life. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict men of sin by revealing that Jesus is the answer to man's sin problem. God has made only one provision for your forgiveness, only one provision for the putting away of your sin and your guilt, and that provision is in and through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring understanding to you of that the bible says jesus said that the work of the spirit the comforter is to not speak on his own but he'll only bear witness of me that's the work of the spirit to show you that jesus is the son of god that, that's it acts chapter 4 verse 12 and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For you to reject God's provision for your sins through the death of His Son leaves God no alternative, folks. 
There is no forgiveness for you. Not in this world, nor in the world to come. Because God has made only one provision for your sins. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to that. And when you reject that, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. To refuse to believe, to refuse to accept the witness of the Spirit is ultimately to blaspheme against the Spirit. The Pharisees had adopted this mode of rejection of Christ. And Jesus is now saying to them, do you understand what you're really rejecting is God? You're rejecting the Holy Spirit who is try God's trying to reach you through His truth? And when they said he is doing these works by the power of the devil, now they're denying obvious evidence that they know better. And when a person comes to that place in his rejection of Christ, he's coming close to that place where the Pharisees found themselves in our text, where you just, you're beyond being saved. There's no more forgiveness for you. You say, oh, how do I know if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? You you wouldn't care. You, you, you wouldn't know. Because you don't even care about anything that Jesus is or what is said about Him. You're beyond that. I, I think it's very important that we understand this morning that we need to be serious about our walk with Christ. If you're a Christian, that, you, look, it's, you're either with Him or you're not. You can't go to the world later today, go out in the community and hide the truth. We're called by Christ to pick up our cross and follow Him. Every day. I, yesterday I got my haircut. Boy, did I get a haircut. And, uh, oh, what a precious lady that cut my hair. And I, I came in there, both barrels ready to witness and love her and just whoever would wash, you know, cut my hair. And, and she already knew the Lord. So we just had sweet fellowship. But we came to a point in the conversation where she said, you know, I just, I just think Christians are so judgmental. She goes, I smoke. And I can't tell you how many Christians come down on me for that. But I look at the things that they do in private. And then she said, and so really, honestly, I don't go to church anywhere. I've been hurt so many times. And so I just try to live it. I just try to live it. Let, let my actions speak. And I, I gently, lovingly pulled her back from that position and said, look, you're going to answer to God one day for whether you were a witness for Christ. And it's not just what you live, it's what you say. You need to continue to share your faith. And you need to be in the assembly of the believers. There are good people who love God. And even if it's only a fraction of a church, you hang out with that fraction. You stay in the fellowship of God's people. You guys heard the story of the guy who brought this donkey, an ass, into the church. And he said, I want you all to meet my donkey. This is a special donkey. He has special understanding from God. And the, he brought him up on the stage of the church. And he said, check out my donkey. And he asked the donkey the question, how many days was Jesus in the grave? And the hoof of the donkey. The people were amazed. How many days to create the heavens and the earth? Wow. 
an amazing donkey. They're marveling at this donkey. And finally, somebody in the back yells out, how many hypocrites are in the church? And the donkey (laughs) falls over with a heart attack. There's a lot of truth in that. There ain't a person in this room right now that's not going to sin before sundown. Some of you aren't going to make it out of the parking lot. Because you're going to start to back out and somebody's going to be right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Your sins are forgiven on the cross. The price has been paid. You're forgiven. That's not a license to go out and just lose it. That's a reminder to love people because God loved you. He saved you. Let's all stand. If you'd like to come forward and just have someone pray with you about any matter in your life or you're carrying a burden for someone else and you'd like to have someone agree with you in prayer for them, we have a elders and prayer partners who will be up front here they'll be glad to help you just walk up to one of them and share and you'll have a prayer partner for the mass though this is a reminder to us we're either for him or we are against him and if we're for him it's activity that starts in our heart we believe that he is the son of god And therefore, everything we do, everything we say, lines up with that. And when we fall short, we know He covers us. His grace, His mercy covers. But the bend of my heart is I'm going to live for Him. I am with Him. I'm not against Him. And those of you who have not made a decision up to this point, just know that Jesus says, if that's you, you have made a decision. You're against Him. And you say, well, how do I know I haven't blasphemed? By receiving the Son of God in your heart. Call out to Him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, you're repenting of your sin, you're turning from your wicked way, and you're believing He's the Son of God. When you call out to Him, the Bible says you will be saved. Father, we want to just thank You that Your Word always seems to focus us back on ourselves. It is so easy right now. There's so, many, there's so much low-hanging fruit to look at the government, look at the nation, look, blame this person, blame that group, and blame this person in my life, and blame this relationship on somebody else. And yet, when we get into your word, never do you want us to play the blame game. You simply want us to get honest and real and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal what's in our backyard. And today you've called us out. I pray that, Lord, as we begin a new year, that today we would make the right decision and that we would be with you, not against you. And we would begin to proclaim the message of truth that you've given us because you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And may we live it and reflect it. And may it make a difference in somebody's life this week. May somebody this week Come to know Jesus Christ because the members of Vero Bible Fellowship were willing to go out and sow seed, throw seed, the Word of God, the Gospel, over all the hearts that we see and meet. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody who knows the Lord said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.